welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to at davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 31st episode of this podcast, recorded on Friday, October 27. Thanks to this podcast sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. My regular readers and listeners know that one of my obsessions is free speech, not just in a legalistic First Amendment sense, but in terms of what could be described more broadly as free speech culture and free speech values. And one of the greatest defenders of free speech, both legally and culturally, is Greg Luciano, president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, aka FIRE, one of my favorite organizations. I should disclose here that I have a number of ties to FIRE. I serve on its advisory council, spoke at its 2022 student network conference, and donate in support of its work. And you should too. I originally invited Greg on the podcast because he and his co-author, Ricky Schlott, just published an important and superb new book, The Canceling of the American Mind. Cancel culture undermines trust and threatens us all, but there is a solution. But Greg is now a timely guest for a second reason. Over the past few weeks, he and FIRE have been working around the clock on free speech and cancel culture controversies arising out of the Israel-Hamas conflict, which we discuss on the show. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Greg Lukianoff. Greg, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, David. So congratulations on The Canceling of the American Mind. It is a wonderful and amazing book. And thank you. I hope it's being well received. Yeah, so far, so good. Definitely, given the horrors of the week that it actually came out, it was kind of hard to get attention for it, but we did manage to pop up on a lot of podcasts and explain how, believe it or not, the themes to, of our book actually relate to uh, a lot of universities' mishandling of the Hamas attacks, for example. Yes, and I definitely want to ask you about that because I have to admit, as someone who shares your strong commitment to free speech, I've definitely been struggling. But First things first, usually I start these episodes with a little bit about my guests. So tell me a bit about your childhood, your upbringing. I believe you grew up in Connecticut. Yeah, there was actually a big Politico profile on me this past yes. weekend. And I, I, the, the tone is intentional. I actually thought it was very kind, to be clear. I just hate being the story of myself so much. <laughs> but it's also partially I wrote a book on cancel culture. It's not just, you know, I'm a kind of private person. It's that. I don't want people who hate my guts to know more about me, you know, like the way that ends up getting used. And I, there were a couple of things that it got slightly wrong. One was my mother is Irish by way of England, and she came here as a nanny in the 1960s during the Mary Poppins British nanny craze. So huh. in a sense, I have, you know, Mary Poppins to thanks for being an American. And my dad is Russian, but he grew up in Yugoslavia and his life was nightmarish. His dad died when he was six. So he was an orphan in Yugoslavia in the 1930s. Like it's just it's a truly awful story, but it actually serves as a reminder for me all the time to be like, I got nothing to complain about. I didn't have rickets and sciatica when I was seven, you know. Wow. But I grew up in Danbury, Connecticut. It was kind of funny being on the West Coast and people were like, 
ooh, you know, I think they thought like polo ponies and stuff like when they heard Connecticut. I'm, I'm not from that Connecticut. But I had a train that ran through my backyard that we used to, you know, sometimes we had to run and get on it. I did that three times and twice nearly killed myself. My brother wow. did it all the time. So yeah, in the profile I talk about, my parents got divorced. It was a little rough. And one thing that I do like to, in order to give myself a, a little grounding when I'm on like a panel and getting nervous, I'm like, you know what? I'm pretty sure I'm the only person who was fired from a Burlington coat factory on this panel. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny. It's a long story to explain why I got fired, but I was actually weirdly proud of getting fired at that point. Okay. I was standing up for one of my friends. Okay. But I worked at a sushi place, handed out free samples, which pays surprisingly well. I was a construction worker. I did tar, you know, in addition to that. But the main thing that I got really good at was being a cook. Mm -hmm. So by the time, actually, even I went to college, I was a cook out on Block Island. And for me, it was one of those things I really needed to know how to do something real. So I can always be a cook. <laughs> okay, that's good. If this law thing doesn't work out for yeah, you exactly. or this author thing. Tell me, what led you to go to law school? And you were at Stanford, for the record. Yeah. In undergrad, people would tell me that I should go to law school because I like to argue. And I remember being like, <laughs> I don't like to argue. I just have strong principles and strong opinions. So what got me to go to interest in law school? You know, like a lot of other first generation kids and immigrant kids, we get that the American First Amendment is weird and special, you know, particularly since you know the other kids in my neighborhood were from Vietnam and from China and then from Korea. They, a lot of them, you know, had experience with totalitarianism back home. And of course, like the kids in my neighborhood were from South America, had experience with authoritarianism, not quite as totalitarian, but, you know, definitely abuses of power. And so when you grow up like that, you can never take things like the First Amendment for granted. We all thought that, that was a very special thing about the United States. And I was also growing up during the 80s and early 90s at a time when a defining characteristic of being a liberal was actually being pro-freedom of speech. And so I really believed in it. Then I was a student journalist in undergrad. And man, nothing is going to radicalize you more in the direction of expansive protections for freedom of speech than being a journalist of any kind. And particularly a student one where students came in all the time being like, you need to fire that reporter. And it's like, why? And you'd watch, and this was one of the most instructive things in my entire life for this principle. They didn't know why yet. They <laughs> didn't know what the justification was yet. They were just angry. And that's what really burned into my head. Oh, the protections of freedom of speech have to be really broad because the human brain is infinitely good at figuring out excuses to get around freedom of speech. So you have to make as few excuses as possible. And then the final thing, that really did it in was the Communications Decency Act of that. I, I remember that was my senior capstone What was the Communications Decency Act. And it, it was an attempt to ban indecency on the Internet. And you don't have to be a First <laughs> Amendment lawyer to be like, yeah, that's unconstitutional. <laughs> and I was sufficiently innocent that it took me forever to put together that Congress actually, at least, you know, a lot of them understood that it was unconstitutional. They just wanted to say there were doing something about the internet and we're relying on the Supreme Court to rein them in. Which it did, although I believe that the Communications Decency Act did give us Section 230, right? Yes, exactly. And so the Communications Decency Act was a ban on indecency, specifically what I'm speaking about, because like the rest of the law is still in place. And yep. 
really valuable in a lot of ways. But the attempt to ban indecency on the Internet was. So you went to law school with already a keen interest in the First Amendment. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I wasn't that into it in my first year. It's that there's not that many First Amendment or free speech related classes that they offer at Stanford in your first year. I, I took the only one that was available. Mm-hmm. But they don't actually get into what it stampered was, at, and this is not true everywhere. They cover the First Amendment in Con Law 2. So you okay. do Con Law 1 in your second semester, and I had that with Kathleen Sullivan. That was reminding me of why I went to law school a little bit. Mm-hmm. But in the Politico piece, Evan Mandry, the guy who did the interview, actually interviewed my mentor, Kathleen Sullivan, at Stanford. And she doesn't remember this, but, you know, like I regressed a little bit when I got into my first year of law school because... I'd never been that, this is a funny thing to say, I'd never been that rich before. The law school loans, the amount of the living allowance that they gave you for law school was the most money I'd ever had in my life. And we had a lot of fun. We went up to San Francisco a lot, you know, kind of became part of like the Burning Man crowd and all. Anyway, but yeah, I hadn't, I'd never had that much money before. And so I had a lot of fun, but I was a little bit not all that excited about law in my first year there and not really feeling that inspired. And Kathleen Sullivan, when I said this to her, she's like, well, maybe you should drop out. Huh. But it was too light a fire under me, to be clear. Mm-hmm. It was a slap in the face that I needed. And that as soon as I was able to remember why I was there, when I got to take Kathleen Sullivan's Con Law 2 class, I got really into it again. And mm-hmm. I spent the next two years taking every single First Amendment class that Stanford offered. When I ran out, I did six credits on censorship <laughs> during the Tudor dynasty. I did an <laughs> externship at the ACLU of Northern California. Oh, wow. And so it was so clear that this was my passion that when Harvey Silverglade, a criminal defense attorney and one of the co-founders of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, asked Kathleen who he'd recommend to be the first legal director of FIRE, it remains the greatest compliment I've ever received that she recommended me by name. Wow. And mm-hmm. so I went and did First Amendment law. I became FIRE's first legal director. And 22 years later, I am the president and CEO and Pretty amazed that I got to actually, you know, do this weird little niche area of law that I love so much. So for the record, I believe Professor Sullivan told Evan Mandry she does not recall telling you to drop out. (laughs) I guess you recall it. (laughs) I do, but if she listens to this, I want to thank her because that was absolutely what I needed. And and it was clearly what was intended. She wasn't really like, well, (laughs) well, loser, get out of my office. She was like, maybe we should drop out. I was like, like, oh, yeah, okay, thanks. That was a slap in the face I needed. Okay. So yeah, I'm always thankful to Kathleen for that. So it's amazing. A lot of people go to law school saying, I want to be a constitutional litigator. And that's basically what you've been doing for two plus decades. You've been a constitutional litigator, but you've also been an author in your earlier book, The Coddling of the American Mind, was a huge bestseller, sold hundreds of thousands of copies. But let's now turn to your new book, The Canceling of the American Mind. I've read a lot about it. The New York Times profiled it before it came out in a group of nonfiction books to watch for the fall. But for folks who are not familiar with it, how would you describe it in a nutshell? So it's kind of a follow-up to Coddling the American Mind, but it can't be as much of a crowd pleaser because in Coddling, we mean what we say in the subtitle. We mean a lot of the problems that we think that we see in parenting, for example, come from good intentions but bad ideas. And the major theme of the book is that We're going to see an uptick in threats to freedom of speech on campus, but also a decline in mental health because my theory going back, you know, to 2007, but then really seeing it take off in like 2013 was that we're teaching young people the mental habits of anxious and depressed people. Whereas here, cancel culture, 
people know they're being cruel. They think they're being cruel in the name of justice in a lot of cases, but there's nothing weird about that. Like basically, like to, in order for people to be truly cruel, they usually have to think they're saving the world. <laughs> and so cancel culture was something that hit right at the same time we started noticing what really when Gen Z started hitting higher ed in large numbers. So it's the same year as 2014. And that's when we started seeing the mental health crisis, students demanding protection from freedom of speech in a variety of ways, usually a very medicalized way. But it's also when we started seeing cancel culture take off. And that's why it's part of the definition, our definition of cancel culture. And our definition is pretty simple, but I actually think less simple than people. You'll understand why it's less simple than people think. But it's the uptick in campaigns to get people fired, deplatformed, otherwise punished, etc., beginning around 2014 and accelerating after 2017 and for speech that would be protected by the First Amendment. Now, here's the part that we discuss more in the appendix because I didn't want to bog down the book too much with this. What we mean is more or less as an analogy to the law surrounding public employment, you know, like with tests like the Pickering test, the Connick test, to a lesser extent, Sebeos, Garcetti v. Sebeos. If you are talking actually about a case where someone is a spokesperson, for example, then we think that's a very common sense standard. And we try to incorporate that in to bring in a great deal of nuance to a short definition because of too long of definitions, just nobody's going to care. And the culture of fear that comes from that. And you'll notice it's not a political definition. So we take on both cancel culture from the left and from the right in the book. But given we're talking about, you know, Fortune 500 companies and higher ed to a degree, an awful lot of it does come from the left. And it's been funny. Like I sometimes try to reassure people on the left when they read this. You know, one third of the successful sanction attempts against professors actually come initially from the right. And I say yes. initially because a lot of times people actually pull the trigger. Oftentimes they're just, you know, politically motivated, left-leaning people themselves. They just don't care that much about free speech. So they're mm. happy to get rid of the person that Fox News is really mad about that. Day, <laughs> you know, but yeah, point out, you know, about a third of them, you know, come initially from the right. But I remember having someone, you know, several times being like, well, I can do math. That means you're saying that 66% come from the other side. And it's <laughs> like, okay. Actually, that's not what it means, because I'd say about 8% is not particularly political. Oh, OK. Uh, Interesting. You know, and those cases, nobody pays attention to. And they make mm. me really mad because if it's not clearly some part of the culture team. war, those never make the news. And the only people who care about them are fire somehow. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a new firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests. Well, I will commend you. The book has chapters on cancellation efforts from both the left and the right, and you are on the left uh, side of the spectrum. But I believe that your co-author, Ricky Schlott, isn't she more conservative? Ricky Schlott's amazing. And so... A couple of years ago, a young journalist reached out to me working on an article for the New York Post where she wanted to make the argument that maybe COVID could be the challenge that uncoddles a generation. And what she means by that, the kind of challenge that causes people to develop self-confidence, like a, a challenge that they get through and give them that sense of self-efficacy. And in talking to her, I found out that she had read Coddling the American Mind. She was a huge fan of it. And she'd actually dropped out of NYU earlier that year, because this was 2020, because, well, one, because she read Coddling and she said she could see all of the trends we talked about there. And she thought it was like a really unhealthy environment. 
but also she very sensibly because she's crazy smart. You know, like as soon as everything went virtual, it's like, I'm not spending $70,000 a year on Zoom school. <laughs> like, like this is not worth it. So she dropped out and she started writing. And so that was the first time we spoke. But immediately people at Fire were like forwarding stuff being like, this girl's like 19. Like, how the hell is she writing like this? Like really good journalism, really pithy, really observant. And so we made her a fellow at FIRE because we were so impressed with her. And she worked with us for a year, really killed it. And then we asked about her political leaning. Yeah, she's more right-leaning and she's more right-leaning libertarian. She's not a fan of Trump either. But I actually honestly think like some of the stuff that causes her to self-define as right today was stuff that, you know, most of the left actually was like 20 years ago, like, mm -hmm. like being alienated by a hyper-judgmental culture. And so originally what we were going to do was a follow-up to Coddling the American Mind. And I was really excited to write specifically with her, not just because she's a killer writer, but also because she's a Gen Z young woman. So wait, did you come up with the idea together then when she was a fellow? Or was this something you were going to do solo and then she was a fellow and she was so great and then she joined you? It was something that initially she became a fellow and I started thinking about the idea of writing something about it. And we'd kind of talked a little bit about it. But then she was really kind of you know shocked when I was like, yeah, let's write something on this. Okay. Almost as soon as I proposed this to her, I realized that it shouldn't actually be coddling of the American mind that we would just a straight up follow up for this reason. I couldn't believe that I was still dealing with people telling me that cancel culture wasn't even real. Yes. And that there are still people saying it's a hoax. And I'm like, no, I've been on campus watching this. Like, as best I can tell, and we did a hell of a lot of research here, by the way, there's been nothing even vaguely approaching the number of professors who have lost their jobs or otherwise been targeted since the law was established, which is between 1957 and 1973. That's academic freedom through campus free speech. That's really like when the watershed, when the law became the, I refer to the modern age of academic freedom. Because prior to 57, it wasn't even clear that you couldn't fire professors for being communists, for example. Like, and a lot of universities thought that, yeah, we can fire them. They're, they're too doctrinaire. You can't trust them not to indoctrinate students. And that was something that was shot down in Sweezy v. New Hampshire in 1957, which is actually kind of considered to be the sort of ceremonial ending of the Red Scare, is once it became clear you couldn't legally do that. So we decided to write this together, and we decided to just put the evidence in one place about cancel culture to try to gather it all together and just make the argument that, one, it's not just real, it's happening on a historic scale, but also to try to get people to rethink about what cancel culture is and what societal function it serves that cancel culture is just the only, the most extreme way of winning arguments without winning arguments. Because, you know, why refute someone if you can just scare them to death or get them to lose their job so nobody else wants to make the same argument again? Mm -hmm. And Bricky's been very perceptive on this. She's like, when I talk about the cancel culture beginning in 2014, she's like, well, I mean, not for Gen Z. It's been part of our lives for our entire lives. And essentially, this is kind of like the way that people would argue in junior high school. And I thought that was a ah. an interesting observation because it's like, oh, so we're all arguing like junior high school students, <laughs> students now. So we talk about it being just one of many tactics that we know are wrong, but we permit to get out of having serious media arguments. So we talk about rhetorical fortresses yes. and, and all this kind of stuff. Yep. And you talk about the perfect rhetorical fortress of the left and the efficient one of the right. But let me ask you this. Going back to your point about how people on the left say cancel culture isn't real. To yeah. turn to current events and the Israel-Hamas conflict and the horrific loss of life on both sides, I do wonder, do you think this is now 
getting some on the left to believe that cancel culture is real because we have seen many people with some pro-Hamas, some pro-Palestinian yep. speech suffering adverse consequences. Is this going to be a wake-up call and all these people who've been yelling at you on Twitter that cancel culture doesn't exist, don't they kind of now have to admit it exists? Yeah, and that's what you'd think, right, David? That essentially when your side starts getting canceled, you start going, oh, maybe consequence culture <laughs> wasn't as well thought out Mythical. as we thought, uh, yes. <laughs> you know? And if that's happening more in private, which, by the way, a lot of things in social media, actually the mind-changing kind of stuff is not the person you're going to actually be talking to. But the first thing that happened when we started having this wave of people getting put on blacklists for being hired and that kind of stuff was a phenomenon we call in the book hypocrisy projection. And hypocrisy projection is something that fire is so used to, which is mm -hmm. tweeter number one who only cares about censorship when it's on their side, on one side of the political fence. And to be clear, hypocrisy projection, we have in the sections where we talk about bad tactics used both by the right and the left, because this absolutely comes from the right and the left. But where's fire on this case? You know, and where's Lukianov on cancel culture when it's these blacklists? And it's called hypocrisy projection because it's one, you know, someone who is being hypocritical because they only care about one side, expecting other people to making everyone else is the hypocrite. But two, they never do their homework. And it literally ends up being like all the time. Where's fire on this case? We're quoted in the link <laughs> that you sent with this email, you know? Yes. Or like, you know where that news story came from? Our press release. Yes. And it's such a lazy way of arguing where essentially it's just like, you must be a hypocrite because it, that's just what fits my worldview and it means I don't have mm -hmm. to engage. And I've said this one a lot. Listen, mm -hmm. instead of hypocrisy projection, how about you work with us to try to help the people who are being canceled, censored, et cetera? Because I've noticed this too. A lot of times they'll just use it as a tool to call out whoever they think is being the hypocrite, which they often yeah. aren't at all, but then don't lift a damn finger mm -hmm. to actually help the professor, student, employee, yeah. et cetera, who's in trouble. So you would think that this would cause people to go, oh, maybe consequence culture was too pat. Maybe we were oversimplifying. Maybe actually... If the consequence I'm talking about is someone losing their career, maybe that does start to look like private censorship on yep. our part. I haven't seen a lot of that yet, but I do okay. think that we are going through a stage where a lot of people are going to be rethinking a lot because I think the last couple of weeks have shaken people's faith in a lot of aspects of my head yeah. and deservedly so. Well, let me be upfront. I'm really sure. struggling with these issues, you know, full disclosure. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that it's over the line, you know, like there, there, there's real harassment. There's yes. real true threats. But let me ask you this. For example, Rhina Workman, the NYU Student Bar Association president who lost her offer at Winston and Strawn after she yeah. used the SBA email to send out this message. Fire sent a letter to the dean of NYU law. You are defending her or at least investigating or looking at her case. But what about the First Amendment associational right of a Winston and Strawn to not have anything to do with a Rhina Workman? I know you were talking about the dean. You sent a letter to the dean. But what about the entities like a Davis Polk or a Winston yeah. and Strawn that wants nothing to do with people that they perceive as endorsing terrorism? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And then this is the tension between arguing for First Amendment, first and foremost, but also believing in what we call free speech culture. Some yes. of the norms that actually mean that free speech concerns don't go away 
if it's not just about government and basically making the point that free speech isn't a bigger, bolder, older promise, but it's about culture. I had this debate with Ken White about this many years ago in Reason that was actually really kind of fun. And we developed a little more of it in Canceling of the American Mind, particularly in the final chapter, Adulthood of the American Mind. So I always have to explain what I'm saying here with regards to, you know, the Winston Strawn example being a particularly good one, is that first and foremost, does Winston Strawn have the right to hire or fire whoever they want? Yes. And can they base it on things, including their speech? Yes. But what our goal is, is to get people to at least consider in a way that we used to be better at as a society, old ideas like everyone's entitled to their opinion. And so I, I try to slowly and calmly walk people through this scenario. Imagine a world in which every company was both a widget shop and an expressive association. And if you disagreed with the boss's point of view on important issues, you would lose your job. And here's the thing. Conservatives don't have to try that hard because that's what it's starting to look like in 2020 and 2021 is that if you came out the boss, you know, is very pro BLM and you're mildly critical, you know, like that's something that could be uh, Levi Strauss executive you talk about in the book. Oh, yeah. We should tell the audience about that. That's the case of, oh, my God, Jennifer, Je Say? Jennifer Say. Yeah, I've said her name so many times. <laughs> broke, drew a blank for a second there. So Jennifer Say was a vice president at Levi Strauss, and she was someone who, you know, might have actually been even in consideration for the presidency at some point, like she was really up there. But she had a long history of defending the rights of kids, particularly, I think both of her kids are biracial, particularly like kids of color, you know, and disadvantaged kids. And when the lockdowns happened, she saw that and she was like, this is going to hurt kids in the long run. And it's particularly going to hurt the most disadvantaged kids. And that was treated like it was heresy to say that at the time. And as we all know, 2020 was particularly ideologically rigid year, shall we say. And it was ugly scene. And they eventually, you know, offered her a severance package to go, but she decided to not take it and quit so she could still talk about her story. And the First Amendment and freedom of speech matters. I mean, here, this is free speech culture. Free speech matters even for your right to be wrong, because the fact that you're eventually vindicated can't be the standard, because otherwise you'd have to know the future before you decide that it's of value. But it is especially galling when someone loses their career over something that later on turns to be completely right. And now it's pretty much taken for granted. Well, yeah, it did hurt kids. I mean, like you can yeah. question if protecting the teachers was worth it or, or whatever, but it absolutely. The data is irrefutable. Yeah. It's, it's irrefutable. It absolutely hurt kids. So what we're saying is that essentially, if every company did this, we'd be in serious troubles. Now, is a thumb on the scale? for free speech going to convince an employer, could you know, convince Goldman Sachs to hire someone who prays to Moss? No, <laughs> probably not. But I think we'd be in a much better situation if people considered things like that. And even okay. Vivek Ramaswamy came out and said that, you know, we don't like blacklists. And for me, there's two very different considerations that I have in this kind of stuff. We also do a little bit of analysis of like, are you a spokesperson? This is one of the way the law is actually pretty helpful. If you're a spokesperson and you said Hamas was right, it's like you probably don't want them as a spokesperson. <laughs> but it's also good to talk to people, you know, individually. Because, and this is a real horrible thing to say about higher ed that also is, I think, quite true, particularly elite higher ed, is that, it's a pretty popular opinion to immediately blame Israel for anything bad that happens to Israel. And it's something that was becoming increasingly, I use this word, but fashionable, like even back in 
my day. And I think it's reached a point where it's so ingrained that these students couldn't imagine people really disagreeing that much with the idea that, of course, mm-hmm. this is Israel's fault, because that seemed to be kind of what everybody thought. I think that employers should talk to those individuals, uh, these individual people, and, you know, do, do them a favor to try to figure out, like, one, a lot of the people who got called out on those blacklists actually didn't decide to join the letter. Yes. The Harvard letter actually turned out they were like, oh, wow, I, I didn't even know, like, our group name was on that. Yes. So g- give them a chance, you know, to explain it. And I think that would be better. But here's the thing that counts the other way. And I've said this also very publicly. If the end result here is that a lot of these fancy corporations hire less from elite higher education, I think that would be a net win for the American people. <laughs> because I think we're as much as like we, you know, I've got a good education at Stanford, you got a good education at Yale. I think that we rely way too much on elite higher education in the United States. Yes. And one thing that you have to be aware of that if you're hiring from elite higher education today is that you may be hiring a canceller. And what I mean by that is that we've heard from employer after employer, particularly after Codling came out, that not exclusively the kids who came from elite colleges, but especially the ones that came from elite colleges, would be the ones who showed up and said, okay, now that I'm here, this corporation, I want the corporation's opinion to be pro-Palestinian. And if people disagree with that, we're going to try to get that person fired. And so I think that some of the cancel culture that corporations complain about actually do come from some of these elite hires. So I think a lot of the process for hiring from anywhere, really, but also for hiring from particularly from elite colleges is can you handle the fact that, you know, our kind of Aspie IT guy is actually vaguely Trumpy, you know, because yes. we're not getting rid of him. He's a genius, yes. you know, or can you handle the fact that, that yeah, you, you're very pro-Palestinian? Well, you know, 50 people here are actually extremely pro-Israel. Can mm-hmm. you work with them respectfully? Or are you going to demand that they get punished or that, that we take a position? Because mm-hmm. I think that corporations have, and we talk about this in the book, I think corporations, like a lot of universities, have made a mistake by deciding to take political stances on a lot of these cases. And I think that they're realizing now that by doing that, they're actually shrinking the pool of talent, which, as we both know, like some of the most talented people that we've ever met are some of the strangest, (laughs) most idiosyncratic, sometimes not always entirely pleasant, but are hard to predict people, that just being politically uniform is not necessarily the sign of a good employee. So that's actually a great segue to what I wanted to talk about next. You and Ricky in the book have a couple of solutions to address the problem, or at least steps that can be taken if maybe they're not quite solutions. One of them is, of course, I think, to not necessarily recruit from all of these elite institutions. You also talk about the issue of universities and also corporations, I guess, issuing these statements. And so we have seen in the past few weeks a flurry of these statements. And then you had a good piece about this where you talked about like the amendment or the addendum or the what have you to the statement that was earlier sent and then the third version and then the fourth version. So you talk about this in the book. What lessons do you think we can draw from the responses to the Israel-Hamas conflict on the idea of institutional statements? So this is an interesting situation for fire, and and it's a good opportunity to sort of explain where we are on this. I believe in what's either called institutional restraint or institutional neutrality. I actually kind of prefer neutrality because it's more easily understood and not as easily sort of circumvented because restraint just, you know, that doesn't give you quite enough guidance. But really, in a sense, really, that's more what you're talking about, trying not to make statements on political issues outside of ones that directly affect the campus community. And we believe this for a long time. And this is something borrowed from the Calvin Report, 
University of Chicago, 1967, saying exactly that, that we're going to buck the trend and we're not going to make political statements because we're supposed to be the forum for speech and research. We're not supposed to be the speakers ourselves. And it's kind of, it's kind of brilliant because when I started at FIRE, Nadine Strawson and I, Nadine, who was a fellow at FIRE, she's a former president of the ACLU. We both had a kind of a journey with Calvin, you know, because I started in 2001 and I was like, man, I'm not all that enamored with it. You know, like the, huh. um, uh, oh yeah, no, no, I started that way. Thinking, and it's partially, I mean, I did have a little bit of some logic that essentially I saw a lot of university presidents rather than punishing the college Republicans for having a, there was a University of Pennsylvania, they had a party where the party was offend everyone. <laughs> <laughs> like that was the theme was who could be the most offensive. Oh. And Graham Spanier, now, now disgraced Graham Spanier, it did say like, listen, I think this is repugnant, but protected. And I'm like, okay, you know, like I'll take that rather than punishing them. So I definitely thought it was like the lesser of two evils. But it started to dawn on me more and more every year that institutions doing this, and by the way, also departments doing this, it creates orthodoxy. And this is yes. something that a lot of people who come straight from First Amendment don't understand that does actually make the academic environment somewhat different. Fighting imposed orthodoxy is part of what you need to have a serious, you know, marketplace of ideas, a serious academy. And so I started to really kind of dawn on all of us that these statements, and as you do one, you're expected to do 500 yes. additional ones. <laughs> and since they all, almost all fall overwhelmingly on the left, if you're like a, you know, conservative professor there going like, okay, so now I have to disagree with the institutional position of the university in my research. Ooh, wow, that's an uphill battle. So it encourages an orthodoxy. So we believe in Calvin. However, everybody who got mad by saying, okay, Harvard, okay, you know, following 50 schools, you commented on everything else. And now you're deciding that you've discovered a political neutrality and free speech. Oh, that's interesting timing there. <laughs> they are 100% right. I have a piece on my Substack that's probably one of the most cynical, skeptical yes. pieces I've ever written because I'm a little bitter about this. I'm kind of like, we're not going to be your dupes on this stuff, man. Yes. Like you commented on everything else. And so I get the anger and frustration. And also what I'm afraid is going to happen is that they're going to say they like institutional neutrality now. And they're going to say they like freedom of speech. But if this is anything like what happened after 9-11, which was when I started my job, that will last, you know, a couple of months. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then the next time there's a threat coming from inside. Oh, this is the dynamic that's really important for everybody to understand. And like, I realized this is something that I took for granted. But, you know, the kind of things you take for granted when you get specialized in a particular area. If campuses perceive the threat from coming outside the academy, and that includes donors, by the way, which is kind of rich in its own strange way, they immediately discover freedom of speech. They oftentimes will start arguing about like, you know, saying it's a new McCarthyism or something like that. But if the threat comes from on campus, if it's student activists, administrators or faculty demanding that someone get canceled for their point of view, it's an entirely different ballgame. And those are the people they're the most afraid of standing up to. So what I'm afraid is going to happen is that universities are going to try to not address the Hamas attacks and not come out and say something about how horrible they were, because in reality, they're terrified of their own students, faculty, and administrators, not because they don't actually support Israel. A lot of these university presidents really do. And it's cancel culture itself that's actually making them, you know, too cowardly to say something about it and that they're just going to end up going back on it in a couple of weeks.
it's really interesting. I think these are issues that people who have a strong commitment to free speech do struggle with. Full disclosure, I'm on FIRE's advisory council, and there's a great, amazing email listserv featuring the board and council members debating these issues. And so it's all these luminaries offering their thoughts on this. So Very civil and interesting. Yes. No, I haven't really contributed, but I've just been honored to be a fly on the wall. And I like the proposal that one of the contributors said, which is basically, look, yes, we've made statements on Ukraine and George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. And we will do this one last statement. We will comment on Israel Hamas. But going forward, no more statements. We're taking the Calvin Report approach. We're taking the approach that Dean Jenny Martinez said at Stanford, quoting the Calvin Report. The institution is the home and sponsor of the critics. It's not the critic itself. So I wonder whether maybe if there's a good thing that comes out of this, maybe one, people realize across the ideological spectrum that cancel culture exists. And two, maybe we're going to stop being so statement happy. Yeah, maybe. You know, in that same article, I'm like, listen, it's going to take years for uh, me to be persuaded that Harvard has really found its way, for example. For that yes. matter, that Stanford has as well. Okay, Jenny uh, Martinez is a step in the right direction. She seems to actually really get it. Yes. And I appreciate that. But for me, you know, like right towards the end, about a third of canceling of the American mind is offering potential solutions. But sometimes when people hear that and hear the subtitle, I always want to say first, If you think we're under the impression that any of this stuff is easily fixable, that's not why we spend one third of the book talking about potential solutions. Like we think the solutions are that we have to try a ton of things and I'm not sure they'll ultimately work. For me, I think that one of the only good things to come out of the way universities have botched this situation is I think we need much more meaningful reform. And I think some of the more meaningful reform, one of the impediments to reform are donors reflexively giving to their alma maters yes. without asking any questions about hyper-bureaucratization? Are they teaching freedom of speech? Are they teaching the principles of inquiry? Are, are they teaching them people how to like disagree civilly? Are they figuring yep. out ways to actually make this a marketplace of ideas? And instead in the book, we talk about higher ed having conformity-inducing pressures, you know, all the way through when it should really be sort of more like non-conformity-inducing pressures. Yes. But I think that the academy is so particularly the elite academy, is so wealthy and powerful in its own way. I think that some of the things that really will make a difference would be, you know, donors can't just, oh, okay, well, I'll give you to this time. I, I think that donors have to stop giving at least for a while. I think that some of the students who feel entirely alienated right now should go to other institutions. And I think that the experiments like University of Texas at Austin, I think we don't just need one of those. I think we need a hundred of them. And the thing is, I would think this, and I do think this, even just related to the how bloated and expensive higher education has become on the cost side. Because one of the things we talk about are the stats about how much the public's appreciation for higher ed has really sunk over recent years. And I complained a little bit about Tom Nichols at The Atlantic immediately tweeting out, oh, it's just because of the right wing conspiracy against higher ed. And I'm like, I've been doing this 22 years, man. If you think that higher education hasn't done anything to lose the public's trust, I think that's nuts. Because like even just on the debt issue, yeah, higher education has put a generation of people into debt. Yes. And guess where most of that money went? Not to more professors, to more administrators, Mm -hmm. to more bias-related incident programs, to more DEI administrators, who, by the way, in a lot of cases are in these cancel culture cases, in these censorship cases, as the groups actually instigating the petitions against professors, instigating the shoutdowns, they actually pose a problem for academic freedom and free speech. So I think that we need some real meaningful pressure for reform. I mean, like, I'm still a Democrat. 
And something the Democrats absolutely could have won me over on was loan forgiveness. Mm-hmm. But you can't have loan forgiveness and then nothing about the cost side of what yes. higher education mm-hmm. is. Like something that was like, you know, we're going to forgive loans and then we're going to cut down on hyper-bureaucratization and make sure that it costs less per student to be educated and all this kind of stuff. That's a sensible proposal. We're going to give a massive influx of cash, but then ask nothing of higher yes. ed whatsoever to rein in its hyper-bureaucratization. That's crazy. That's rewarding. That's, that's moral yeah. hazard. So I, I get excited about some of the more creative you know, potential solutions out there. I was going to say, I would refer people to your national review piece, How Donors Can Help Fix Our Broken Campuses. But now let's turn to our speed round, my final four questions, which are standardized for all my guests. My first question is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law in the trenches or law as a more abstract system of governance. I'm embarrassed to admit, but I think you can tell by what I actually prefer to write about is that I get much more excited about social psychology, you know, for a couple of years now. <laughs> and I'm occasionally, I'll occasionally like reread my old law opinions and fall back in love with it a little bit again. But I think ultimately my father used to say, it's like, uh, you don't want to go into law. You're interested in psychology. <laughs> uh, you know. And he's right. You know, kind of like I ended up writing more about psychology these days than I do about law. So to so turn it into a positive. I would love to actually have a center at FIRE where a lot of what we do is just taking well-established research in psychology and particularly marrying it to constitutional law because so many of the concepts that are actually well-established in social psychology, for example, have direct bearing on concepts and arguments that we make in constitutional law. No, that makes perfect sense. So I guess if we were to phrase it in terms of the question, perhaps the law is not adequately taking account of, of psychology. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Let me turn to my second question. Yep. And maybe you've already answered this in your response to the first, but what would you be if you were not a lawyer? Would you be a psychologist or a professor of psychology? It's kind of funny. I mean, I have a lot of loves. As we previously mentioned, I might be a cook. I always talk about retiring and buying that comic book store I've always wanted. I'm I'm a big comic book nerd. As far as intellectual passions, what I really wanted to do after law school and had to talk myself out of it was get a PhD in history. And scientific history is kind of my real love. It was only later, much later, that I started really falling in love with psychology. I think if I had to choose between the two, I'd probably choose scientific history. I actually really doing a deep dive into that because as far as something I just get super excited about, I just love it. Oh, that's great. My third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? You know, when I got to law school, I did a list of my priorities. Sleep was number one. Really? As a law student, you knew that. I'm surprised. Yeah, no, it was eccentric. And I was out partying, but I was like eight hours every night. And I really committed to eight hours every night. And it was life changing. It was so good. And lately, I've been trying to improve my sleep hygiene and realizing, unfortunately, that I kind of thought that alcohol interfering with sleep would be like one to two drinks wouldn't really interfere with sleep. But, you know, a lot would. And I've discovered that it actually it's zero that is best for sleep. And I really do still try to get, you know, eight hours a night if I can. Okay, good. And my last question is, any final words of wisdom, such as career advice or life advice for my listeners? I really hope that some of these other experimental methods of for, for people to show how smart and hardworking they are actually can be successful. But I also always advise people to learn more about cognitive behavioral therapy because it really did change my life. And, you know, and for me, then this will get me in trouble. I have kids. I was very hesitant to have children because my parents didn't make it look really great. And now I just wish I'd started earlier so we could have more 
I see a lot of people deciding not to have kids. And obviously, I'm not saying it's for literally everybody. It's not. But a lot of the propaganda you've heard about not having them is just not true. It's probably the best thing I ever did in my life. Wow, that's fascinating. I've had a lot of eminent lawyers and judges on this podcast, and I have never gotten that answer yet. So uh, I happen to agree with it, too. I know we both have to run to deal with kid-related things ourselves. Yeah, but took them out for Halloween, Capitol Hill's Halloween party. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Greg, for your time today, for the great book, and for all you do to protect free speech culture. Always a pleasure, Dave. Thanks so much to Greg for joining me and for his tireless work in defense of free speech. I urge all of you to read his new book, The Canceling of the American Mind, which is excellent. Thanks to NextFirm for sponsoring the Original Jurisdiction podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. To explore this opportunity, please contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Heron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction. And thanks to you, my listeners and readers. To connect with me, email me at davidlatt at substack.com or find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, but it's made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, November 15. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.